Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Paul. Hi, everybody. My name is R. I'm a compulsive overeater, etc. And um, I want to thank uh, Walter for asking me to speak here. Um, it's, it's a real pleasure. Um, let me give some basics in the traditional way. I came into program on the 23rd of January, 1990. It was a Friday night. It was at uh, West Side Pavilion. There was a huge meeting there at that time. Um, and about two weeks later, I got my first abstinence, which, uh, my first and only abstinence, I might add, which was from sugar. Um, it was uh, kind of scary uh, to think about. Um, uh, having to go home that night, I think it was a Tuesday night, and um, uh, and not to have my usual quart of uh, ice cream. Quart's a half gallon, by the way, uh, which is um, you know way more ice cream than anyone ever needs, you know. And uh, it was my little reward uh, for getting through the day. Um, my compulsive uh, eating, my fascination with food, or my fixation with food, goes back to my early childhood. Um, I uh, I can remember being about age five and uh, finishing breakfast, and uh, I grew up in the 50s when, uh, you know, a homemaker was, my mother was a homemaker, and uh, uh, breakfast had a lot of variety to them. It might be oatmeal one day and eggs the next and French toast. And, um, and you know, it was a, uh, a very nourishing breakfast. I finished breakfast and I turned to my mom and I said, what's for lunch? And, um, you know, that was my path with food. Uh, I wasn't in, I figured out since then, that I really wasn't feeling anything when I said that. I was, you know, numbing myself with food and looking forward to the next numb. I didn't allow myself to feel sated by the meal that I had just eaten. And, um, uh, and that was sort of, you know, where I was at. Um, I can remember... Uh, a little later on, like around age seven or eight, um, leaving the house, and by that time I had a little pocket money, and I would uh, uh, go to a nearby bakery that opened very early in the morning, and I would have, I would for a nickel, I, I would uh, get a, a hot egg bagel. Man, there is nothing like a hot egg bagel. They are just... Great, you know, even for a little kid, I, uh, you know, I, I, I like the flavor of that. And um, uh, and then I would, you know, go on to school. Again, 
Like I said, I'd already eaten breakfast. You know. Then I can remember being a little bit older and having a paper route, and uh, you know they would bring us extra papers, not a lot, but uh, a couple more. And I would go up to the uh, nearby thoroughfare, the main thoroughfare. This is like pre-freeway, and um, uh, and I would stand out on the corner like uh, those newsboys that I saw in the movies when I was a kid. You know, I'd hold the newspaper like this and. Some commuter would stop and he would give me whatever it was for the newspaper. I can't remember if it was a nickel or a dime, but I would like put together over a couple of days like a quarter. And I would, yeah, and I would go into a deli, a nearby deli, which is no longer there, and I would look up at the guy behind the counter and I would say, I'd like 20 cents worth of that rare roast beef and a salt bagel. Would you please slice the bagel for me, right? And I would, you know, and he would look down on me like he was, um, you know, doing a mitzvah for this little kid here. And a smile, a knowing little smile. And, uh, uh, you know, Alpha I would go on my bicycle and I would just love that bagel and roast beef, you know. And I would fantasize that when I grew up, when I was old enough to drive, and driving was like always something that, uh, you know, little boys wanted to, I couldn't wait to drive, you know. I had a fascination with cars, even at that age. And um, uh, I I would uh, fantasize that when I grew up, I was going to drive across country, and I was going to do so with a stash of roast beef and and salt bagels, you know. And, uh, uh, I mean, it's funny to think back on that stuff. And then... Some days I would really have like a Jones for something really rich. And and, uh, there was a place where they sold hot dogs with chili. They called them chili dogs, I guess. But the chili was really greasy, and it was just for hot dogs. And I would go in there, and I would negotiate a side order of this greasy chili. I'm surprised that I didn't have zits at the age of two, you know. I mean, not two, but... uh, 10 or whatever I was when I was doing this and I would eat the stuff in the, in the middle of the afternoon straight and um, when I graduated from uh, elementary school I was pudgy my little picture is you know kind of like that and uh, uh, but by the time that I graduated from high school it had all gone away I mean you know exercise and so on and so forth and uh you know, I was eating pretty good, but I was growing, you know, leaps and bounds. So I didn't really put on a lot of weight. Uh, I mean, I, I had some on me, but not, not a lot. And um, I ended up going overseas. I was in the military, and um, it was the first time that I was um, really isolated, or I felt isolated, and um, I was lonely. And <clears throat> I had no skills to deal with the things going on inside me. Um, you know, I, I didn't know what feelings were, uh, per se, and uh, I started to eat. Food was, like, abundant, and I started to eat, and I started to grow. And uh, one day, the uh, commanding officer of my unit, you know, uh, called me over, and he said, um, you know, uh, you're not in a healthy state. Um, you're going to have to give that away. 
and uh, I don't think he used that term, but uh, that's the one I'm using now. I, I want to be gentle with it. Give it away, you know. And uh, so I went to the um, uh, the base physician, uh, who was um, quite a character himself. But at any rate, he gave me these little capsules, and inside the little capsules, you could see in them, you know, there were white and green little speckled pieces of whatever the prescription was. And um, needless to say, I started to uh, speed up quite a bit because it just happened to be speed. And um, I started to exercise a lot, and I um, uh, I gave it away, you know. And, um, uh, and then I was okay for a long time. And, and then um, I started to... Uh, venture into um, other ways of um, obtaining the numbness that I wanted to feel inside, um, like uh, through alcohol and um, through exercise and through, um, a little later on, through pot and um, spending, and um, and the list goes on. And... Um, so I, I actually, um, in programs, sometimes I refer to myself as the juggler because for a long time, you know, I did not gain weight. I, I had all of these things that I could draw upon. And, uh, you know, if I ever, if I came to the edge with one of them, I could switch to the other or I could use them in concert with one another, you know. And uh, so I had a... Um, you know, uh, a relatively productive life. And um, uh, and I had no idea how isolated I was from people, you know. So um, one by one, um, I had to give these things up. And um, the, first thing that, the first thing I gave up, which I gave up uh, very voluntarily, I mean, is there such a... Uh, is there grammar like that? Very voluntarily. Uh, anyways, uh, I quit smoking. And, um, you know, I wanted to quit smoking, so I quit. And um, that didn't interfere with uh, the other kind of smoking I was doing, but um, quit smoking. And then, uh, finally, uh, I was in my 40s, and um, I got uh, pulled over for uh, drinking. And it was so humiliating for me that I stopped drinking, just like that. Anyways, finally it came down to just being left with two things to lean on. One, food. Two, pot. Okay. Well, you know, uh, what a combo. Okay. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we all know the story there. And so I really started to... uh, Balloon, and I couldn't. Uh, I, I lost the ability to exercise for a while, and uh, when I got the ability to back, uh, the willingness had left, so that was gone too. And um, um, one day, one Friday, I was um, uh, playing some pitch and putt golf with a friend, and he said. Um, Hey, I started at uh, OA. Why don't you come along with me tonight? What's your schedule like? And I said, okay. And I walked into these rooms, and I heard the truth spoken. You know, I really felt like 
I was one of you guys, and um, and I kept coming back. And uh, I don't know how much weight I've given away. The only remnant that I've kept, so to speak, is uh, this vest. I've given away like eight inches from around my waist, and um, it translates like kind of like this. I got this big shirt on right now, but um, it, it, you know. I'm kind of one of these people, you know. So uh, I'm I'm very very grateful for that. Um, you know, I don't know how many pounds that is, but it's uh, you know eight inches over my waist. And um, I want to talk. Uh, I have no idea where I am time wise, but uh, let me see here. Oh, I got plenty of time. I want I want to talk about my uh, process. Uh, with um, a little more with food. Um, I'm a compulsive overeater. I've I've never had really a uh, a problem with uh, anorexia. Um, I tried bulimia once, but um, with the sort of foods that I was eating, they were a bit heavy to uh, uh, you know effectively deal with and. Um, so, you know, I flunked at that, and um, um, but I knew that sugar was my deal. I mean, there was no question about it. And um, um, and I have not had sugar since, you know, actually the 7th of February, 1990. I just, I just turned uh, 19, actually one day at a time. And, um, but I gave away my body mass in slow steps. I did not rip it off. For one thing, you know, I, I didn't mention it, but I had gone up and down, you know, a number of times. Uh, not to the, I hadn't gone up to the point that I was at when I came into program, but I'd gone up and down, and I could not, like, do another diet. And, um, you know, I just wasn't willing. I could, though, abstain from sugar. You know, I went home that night and I said, this is just for one night. And, um, you know, lo and behold, as they say, I slept the whole night through, which I was not doing before that. I, You know, when you ingest all that, you have to get up and uh, take care of business, so to speak. And um, I didn't have to. You know, it allowed me a good night's sleep. So, you know, on to night two and... Um, and you can, and I'm still there. Also, in the beginning, my my abstinence was kind of rigid. You know, if if um, I was taught to look at uh, ingredients on the package or the can or whatever, and if it was any higher on the list than like five, I wouldn't eat it. You know, so no ketchup and um, stuff like that because the sugar content of ketchup is pretty high. But um, as I matured, uh, so to speak, in program and became more knowledgeable about my own physiology and my own psychology, I realized that, like, I wasn't going to binge on ketchup. Uh, It wasn't going to trigger me to eat something else that was sweet. And, you know, physiologically, it didn't throw me off. So I will now have ketchup. You know, well, it's got a high sugar content, but but I'm okay with it. Um, 
you know, there are times when I want to hand something over to my higher power, and most of the time that's got to do with people, places, and things. I'm not somebody who usually remembers to hand food over to my higher power. I wish that I could say differently, but my the way that I deal with food is like being very conscious of it. There's a certain control element to it, but really it's an awareness for me. Um, an awareness that I can make a choice, you know. And um, a, a little further on into my abstinence, I, I used to allow myself a very, what I thought was a very healthy afternoon snack of some air-popped popcorn, okay? Well, uh, you know, I didn't realize at that time that there were enough carbohydrates in that air-popped popcorn to, like, energize an entire company of uh, military people. You know, I mean, it was like Carb City. There wasn't a lot of fat in it because there was no, you know, it was air pop. But uh, one day at a time, I gave up uh, that afternoon snack, and so I gave away a little more body mass. And um, uh, the next major thing that uh, I was able to let go of, and, and... when I say let go, I mean, um, well, the next thing was rice, okay? And um, and I haven't fully let go of it. I've let go of it like this. There's a 10-pound bag of rice in my cupboard, okay? I lived in Asia for a while and did it three times a day, and it was like home, and I was sure that in an earlier life, you know, that's where I had, uh, you know, learned to love rice. Um, The way that I've given up rice is I will not cook anything in my house with rice. I used to make these rice, these savory rice puddings. And man, you know, I know how to cook. I mean, they were just let me loose on that baby. And um, uh, I don't do that anymore, and it's not a challenge. It's it's kind of like putting the cork in the bottle, okay, for me, not to not to prepare rice at home. I can I can go out and have sushi sometimes. I can have rice with a meal as long as it's out, and I'm lucky that I can do this. Uh, And this is my my path. Um, So I'm I'm just uh, sharing it with you guys. Uh, Let me move into um, the steps. A couple years ago, I asked myself why. Am I still here when so many people have come in and aren't here anymore? And, I mean, people leave because they graduate and um, in, in a positive way, and people leave for other reasons. And I'm still here. And I realized right away when I asked myself the question that I'm here because I am really powerless over food. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I, I really feel, too, that my life is unmanageable. I feel that it's unmanageable because at the time that I came into program, 
And I said I was isolated. I was very unhappy. Okay, I had a lot of things that that people would say, you know, that looks good. That's uh, the path that you need to be on and, and uh, you know, points for this, points for that, and so on and so forth. But I wasn't happy. I was really discontented and, um, uh, you know, not, not a happy camper. And um, um, so my life, you know, I knew it was unmanageable. I saw the recovery in these rooms, you know, like it says in... in Step two. And although I didn't have reticence about turning to a higher power for help, it was everybody else witnessing to me their recovery that really kept me coming back. And you people are such a mirror for what's going on inside me that I am like grateful, 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 grateful. It's my new middle name. Um, that and Costco. Um, no. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, um, turning my will and my life over to a higher power is very easy for me, particularly when it re- relates to people, places, and things. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I, uh, I want to talk about the tools just a little bit. Um, I used to hear everybody talking about they were making phone calls and getting with their sponsor and all of this and going to meetings and literature. And I got down on myself because I wasn't able to use all of those tools effectively. Uh, The tools that work best for me are meetings because I just take it all in. You know, I can really hear what's going on and I can reflect on, you know, what's going on within me from what I hear from you guys, as I said earlier. Literature and uh, <clears throat> and a little bit of phone contact. You know, uh, when I came in, that phone was, uh, as they say, it was the proverbial 2,000-pound telephone. It was very hard to make outreach calls. And, you know, there's a reason in this program why... Uh, People don't respond to phone calls the same way they do in AAs because, um, and I'll move off this subject real quick. It's because with this program, you know, we've got to face the tiger three times a day. With other things that we use, it's like you put the cork in the bottle, that's it. You know, and if somebody's making an outreach call because, you know, they're not going to put the cork in the bottle, it's an altogether different deal. We in this program need to come to terms with our own process more than in in other uh, programs, or at least that that's my the way that I uh, sort of view it. At any rate, uh, that was very difficult for me. So now I've accepted that, like I get the most from meetings. Uh, I enjoy doing service on uh, some level. Um, I work with a sponsor sometimes. Um, I make phone calls sometimes, and uh, and I accept that. So, anyways, let me let me like move into um, uh, the steps a little bit uh, further. Um, number six: We were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Hmm. Well, what are my character defects? I discovered that my character defects primarily are pride, fear, 
and some sloth that comes from perfectionism. Those, that's what my, those are my character defects. But I thought that one of my character defects was my sensitivity. Okay. Um, what I discovered when I was doing my inventory that sensitivity isn't on that list. I used to get from my old friend, <clears throat> um, my oldest uh, childhood friend, you're so sensitive. Well, when I heard that, the first thing that I would do is deny it. Okay, what do you mean I'm sensitive? You know, which is, uh, it's, it's, it's funny in itself. But, you know, men don't like to think of themselves as being sensitive. I mean, I didn't at that time. What I realized as I worked the steps and stuck around program was that, you know, sensitivity was not the issue and it was not a defect. The issue was the self-centeredness. If I took the self-centered, the me, 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 out of my sensitivity, I realize that it's a gift. For me, it's a real gift. And so what I thought was my greatest weakness or defect was actually my greatest, it's one of my greatest strengths, okay? As long as I can set myself aside with it, you know? Now, they talk about that in, in some of the literature. Um, I can't point you to it, but... Uh, but it's in there. So, you know, I had a real aha with, with, uh, while I was working these steps with, with a lot of issues. So, um, <clears throat> humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Now, I do have some other defects, but they don't pop up very often. They're kind of like subplots or sub-sub-subplots or whatever, you know. And, um, um, and I watched people around program who had been here much longer than myself and a lot of them were like as I observed it a lot of them were like um, yeah I did my seventh step and I moved on and gosh you know what that, that defect will be relie- you know, relieved from me when God chooses to have it lifted you know, it was almost like I heard this sort of cavalier attitude about step seven and about humbly asking God to um, remove uh, my shortcomings, our shortcomings. And one day I was reading um, the OA 12 and 12, which I have really come to respect. I, you know, I was a devotee of the AA 12 and 12. But um, um, now that I've really read the uh, OA 12 and 12, man, I'm just in love with the way that, you know, it plays in concert to to what it says in the AA version. Because um, inside the, um, the OA 12 and 12, it suggests that we, and, and I'm saying this in... Uh, because I was having trouble letting go of some of these defects. It says that we should, on a daily basis, when we pray to God, humbly ask God to take our character defects from us. Um, I forgot to bring it. I was going to bring it along uh, and read it. Because it really spoke to me that, you know, step seven for me has to be an ongoing process. It's not just a one time and then, Thanks very much, and off I go. 
know. And um, so um, that awareness has helped me to, to deal with this. Then um, Step 8 made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And uh, uh, one of the things that I did when I came into program was, you know, I... I knew I had some defects. I knew that I was self-centered, not in a selfish way. I didn't think of it that way. I don't suppose it would be judged that way, but it was more like, gee, doesn't everybody have to think the same way that I do? It was more on that level. It was sort of self-centered selfishness rather than, um, you know, wanting to grab or avarice or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And um, um, so... um, where was I? I lost my train of thought. But uh, uh, step eight, right? Yeah. So uh, I, towards certain people that were close to me, the important ones, if I was aware that I was behaving in a way that reflected um, negatively of me, that, that was self-centered on my my part, I, I uh, changed my behavior. You know, I uh, I held back on what I used to say. I held back on what I used to write, as it tells us to do in the big book. You know, restraint of pen and tongue. More tongue than pen. But um, I started making a living amends to these people. But I still wasn't always really clear about the whole process of forgiving someone else. And... Um, uh, one day I was um, thinking about uh, someone very close to me that um, where the relationship had healed like 90 some odd percent and um, I had this awareness that uh, I had never heard that person say anything prejudiced about anyone else I'd never heard that person express racial prejudice or religious prejudice or ethnic prejudice or sexual prejudice none of that stuff and um, and I took that for granted you know that's the way it is I just I didn't really realize what a gift that was that was coming my way and so you know, I realized that I had to build a positive inventory of that person rather than a negative one. And then a little while later, I was in the uh, the OA 12 and 12, not the, not the workbook, and one of the questions that it asked was just about that specific thing, um, you know, but it's asking the question of me. It's supposed to stimulate my thinking process. And uh, it has three or four questions all in one little paragraph about that. And um, I realized that um, the easiest way for me to build a positive inventory of someone else was to take that OA 12 and 12, step four, go through it and take the other person's inventory, but not the negative side, just the positive side. And it has helped me so much to do that. One of the things that I also did in making my amends was to not share my process, but 
with that particular person, but to go to them and say, thank you for this example, you know, and, you know, and to mean it from the bottom of my heart, you know, and it it brought us, of course, it brought us closer, you know, so, um, you know, that's my process with with that. Another um, uh, step eight person that I had, um, uh, an issue with uh, was also very close with my ex-wife, and um, you know I owed her some amends. I didn't owe her any money or anything like that, but um, she had uh, moved away and she uh, was uh, living in uh, another state actually. And I decided to write her a letter, and I had totally blame myself for everything that went wrong between us. It was all my fault. And um, I didn't have perspective on things in that regard. But I wrote the letter. It's my fault. I didn't say it that way, but um, uh, I got a letter back. And I brought the letter with me here. And... um, 5 June 1996. It took me a while to get there, okay? To get the willingness. I mean, it wasn't like flip a switch. Here's the letter. And uh, I'll skip to uh, paragraph 2. It's been a long time since we talked. I'm not proud of how I behaved during our marriage. So, if anything, I should be making amends to you. I think my actions were partially influenced by what I didn't know then. I have bipolar disease, formerly called manic depressive illness. I have a psychiatrist, exclamation point. Lucky me, exclamation point. I found myself suicidal two years ago over nothing, exclamation point. So he confirmed what I had wondered about four years, BPD. For the rest of my life, medication. Fortunately, I don't have children because it's genetic, okay? And when I got this, it was like several tons were lifted off my shoulders, okay? Now, it it wasn't something that I could see in her, okay? It it didn't manifest itself um, uh, in a way that was obvious to me. I mean, you know, um, so... uh, but what a blessing to to get a letter like this back, you know. Um, they say that making amends is something that we do for ourselves, and um, um, you know it uh, it is it is. Um, so where am I? Oh, five minutes. Okay. So. Um, what should I talk about? You know what? I'll just, if there's any questions, if anybody wants to ask a question, I'll, I'll be happy to try and answer it to the best of my ability. So, thanks. How does this work? I forgot. Oh, okay. Stay up here. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your share. That's great. The spiritual part of what you do, could you share that? Yeah. Uh, the question was the spiritual part, the daily, the daily part of my spiritual program. Well, honestly, for me, the spiritual part of my program has ebbed and flowed. 
Um, when I was uh, very new in program, um, I developed a kind of a rigorous process that um, I began my day by writing out the prayer of St. Francis. Now, this was way before I got to step 11, where, you know, the prayer is in the AA 12 and 12. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, that where there is hatred I may bring love, and so on and so forth. I, I started by writing it out, and I wrote it out because I wanted to slow down my mind process, and I wanted to concentrate on each word in the sentence. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't do that anymore. And I didn't do that to to memorize the prayer either. I just did it to try and refocus, if you will, to change my point of view, my POV on life. And um, uh, there, and honestly, I don't have a daily process today, uh, n- not defined in those terms. But I, I frequently focus on gratitude. If I'm feeling at all empty, I, I acknowledge the, the abundance that's in my life. I mean, there's so much abundance. I was trained. My dad was metaphorically a horse trader. And he taught me real young, real young, that you have to know what's wrong with something before you buy it rather than afterwards and so you need to look at everything very critically and I'm in a profession where one of the theories that they use is called well one of the principles that they use is called the principle of exceptions meaning the squeaky wheel gets oiled and so I had to reorient myself and and focusing on gratitude helps me like to do that and another thing that I do um, and I hate to admit it while talking on tape, but, um, you know, I come from low self-esteem, and I was taught to, like, write out a list of ten things that I like about myself, generally simple things, generally esteemable acts, so that it isn't, you know, complicated. Today I went to a meeting, today I was abstinent. You know, and to say my name, you know, R, I like you for taking that outreach call. Or R, I like to yada 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 like that. Real simple things. No certificates on the wall or you know big big things. So that's a lot of my and and acknowledging the presence of God in in my life through the synchronicity that I sense from time to time. The connection with events and and the presence of God and the two coming together. You know. A special way, so to speak. That's it. Fire.